Good to see you all this morning. Happy Sabbath. Wonderful day here in Virginia. I'm glad to be with you. As we get started this morning, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the study of His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have gathered here, and as we have gathered here, we have gathered here as the Spirit has led. And now, Lord, we would ask that the Spirit would continue to lead, and that He would lead us into all truth. Lord, sanctify us in Your truth as we spend time in Your Word. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The final message that I'll be sharing with you this morning is Revelation's cure for lost love. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open to Revelation. And many of you already know where we're going to go. Revelation, the second chapter. There in Revelation chapter 2, and as we understand the book of Revelation, it is important to note that the book of Revelation is a letter. It was a letter to seven churches. We know those seven churches. Those seven churches all would have received the book of Revelation. And I want to encourage you as you read the book of Revelation is that too often when we read the book of Revelation, we isolate certain passages from its entirety. And in so doing, we lose sight of the great story. The cosmic conflict that exists between good and evil. And in the complications of understanding the trumpets and the seals and the beasts and the woman and all of these different things, we lose sight of what the whole point of the book of Revelation is. Very simple. Jesus wins. The devil loses. Choose to be on Jesus' side. And you'll hear me say that over and over again because we lose sight When we get into the nuanced, well, what are the lampstands? Now, are the lampstands important? Yes, I'm not denying the importance of understanding these things, but let us not lose sight of the forest by simply studying the bark on one of the trees. In fact, I would encourage you, if you've never done so, to either read, or even better yet, listen to the entire book of Revelation in one sitting. It'll only take about an hour and a few minutes. A number of years ago, I went to the Creation Museum in Kentucky. And there was a man there by the name of Tom Mayer. He is not a Seventh-day Adventist. But he recited the book of Revelation from memory. And it's an amazing thing, and we can, we can wow, he, he knew the whole book by heart. But more profound was to sit and listen. And all of a sudden, Revelation 12, 13, and 14 has a very different effect than when we just isolate it into passages. You have to, We all remember uh, that the Bible, when originally written, was not written in chapter and verse division. In fact, my good friend D. Casper has put me onto something, and I haven't had the chance to tell you. You know, after you told me about the Reader's Bible, D., I went out and I, I actually 
uh, and I didn't do it. I, I have some wonderful people that, that for my birthday, they gave me the ESV, but the five-volume set of the reader's version of the Bible. What's the reader's version of the Bible? There's no chapter and verse division. And so when you sit down and you read it, you begin reading and, and you're not distracted by the chapters and the verses. Oh, I need to stop here. I, I've finished the chapter. No, you're reading the story. By the way, another thing to notice, and this is just kind of a bonus and has nothing to do with my sermon, but when you get the five-volume set, here's the fascinating thing. You have the epistles in Revelation. You have the Gospels. And then you have the Old Testament. There are so many Christians willing to throw away the bulk of the story. But I would encourage you to listen to the entirety of the book of Revelation because what you see when you read through the entirety of the book of Revelation is this grand cosmic conflict and the sweeping battle between God and Satan, the sweeping battle between Christ and Satan and his goal of doing one thing, and that is the conquering of the devil in our hearts that he would have us. And as we read through, we will focus now on the message to the church of Ephesus. Last night we looked at the Laodicean message, which is the last of the seven messages. And this morning we will look at the first, because that first message has an interesting consequence on us living in these last days. In fact, I'll be ending my sermon with a rather lengthy quotation from the spirit of prophecy that will help us see the importance of this message in these final hours of earth's history. As we begin looking here, we journey to Ephesus. What is Ephesus? Or where was Ephesus? Ephesus was, of course, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It was a port city. It was an important port city. Ephesus experienced substantial growth during Rome's Pax Romana expansion. But Ephesus needed to do something to maintain their status as a port city. You see, the river, the river that dumped into the Aegean Sea there in Ephesus contained significant amounts of particles, which we would call silt. It would deposit the silt in the port, and Ephesus, even in that ancient time, had developed a wonderful system of engineering where they would remove the silt from the port city. And so they, 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 they had this remarkable feat of engineering to keep it as a port talked about last night, Ephesus became a, a, a feature of the imperial cult of Rome when Domitian deified himself while he was still living and, and they built a temple to Domitian there in Ephesus. 
Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. They believe its population to be somewhere around a quarter of a million people. And while that may not sound major in our modern society, that was a lot of people at that time. In Ephesus, there were no less than 17 different false gods worshipped. Aphrodite, Apollo, Asclepius, Athena, Demeter, Dionysus, Hercules, Pluton, Poseidon, and Zeus, just to name a few. There were seven temples to the dead emperors in Ephesus. But Ephesus was not only dominated by pagan religion, but it was dominated by something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a religious movement within the church that stressed philosophy. It viewed knowledge above all else. A secret knowledge. And the Gnostics fell into essentially two categories. The Gnostics believed that Jesus did not come in the flesh. He was merely a spirit and had no real connection with the human race. And in the other rut, the Gnostics believed that Jesus was entirely human and had no divinity. In addition to all of this, if this were not enough, Ephesus was known as a center of magic. And if that were not enough, Ephesus was a a center of what they called hero veneration. They venerated Alexander the Great. They venerated Androculus, the founder of Ephesus. And it's in that context that now God has a message to the Christian church that existed in Ephesus. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. We all know that the number seven is important. Seven, yes, represents perfection, but more than that, Seven represents the perfect creation. It is on the seventh day that God rested. It is seven days in which He created. The number seven, Jacob served seven years. When Pharaoh had a dream, seven fat oxen, seven lean ones. There are the seven branches of the golden candlestick. There are seven trumpets. There are seven priests. There are seven days of siege in Jericho, seven churches, seven spirits, seven stars, seven seals, seven vials, and the list goes on and on. The the number seems to represent a perfection. And there are seven stars. The word there, stars, is the word messenger. It is the same word that is translated angel. But that word angelos can also mean messenger. Jesus promises and remember the construction of the messages to the seven churches. There was an introduction to the character of Jesus, a commendation, 
a rebuke and an exhortation followed by a promise. And Jesus is introduced as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Jesus is the one who holds the messengers. He is the one who sustains the messengers by his divine power and his grace. He watches over the leaders of his last day church and protects them and guides them. It is an important message to those leading in God's last day church that we would find ourselves under the guidance of Jesus Christ. Too often in leadership we rely upon our own smarts. We rely upon our own experience. But we need to rely upon the one who holds the seven stars in his hands. But beyond that, it says that he is the one. And we're going to see in just a moment, by the way, that this is important to Ephesus because Ephesus has found out that there are false apostles and false leaders. But Jesus is also the one who walks in the midst of the candlesticks. Earlier in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 13, it tells us what the candlesticks represent. The candlesticks represent the churches. And what is Jesus trying to communicate here? I know that you are surrounded by Apollo, Zeus, Hercules, the temple to Hadrian, the temple to Domitian. You are surrounded by the temples of Poseidon and others. But even though you are surrounded by such things, I walk in the midst of the church. You see, the pagan gods were thought to exist somewhere out there, but Jesus wants us to understand that He doesn't exist somewhere out there. He is in the midst of us. He is in constant communication with us. He is constantly around us. He knows our true state. He knows what's happening in our lives. He watches. He watches to see that if amongst the candlestick, maybe there is a wick that is flittering and about to be extinguished, and Jesus has the care of His church. And as we know, these seven churches of Revelation represent seven time periods throughout the earth's history. And it has been God's goal throughout that history that the church would return to Him. We know, of course, that that has not always happened. But now in these last days, God is calling upon His people to realize that He walks in the midst of us. He will guide and direct our movements if we are open to us. Open to Him, rather. But for His light to shine, He must be the Savior of the church, but He also must be the Lord of the church. And then in verse 2, He commends the church in Ephesus. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my sake, 
and have not become weary. I want you to take note that there's something very, very interesting. I have homiletics students here this morning. Here in Ephesians chapter 2, there is what is called a chiastic structure. A chiastic structure in the original Greek language is to draw attention to the main point. And I want you to notice the progression of verses 2 and 3 and how that operates. What does he say? Works, labor, patience cannot bear with those who are evil. Tested those, and then we go backwards. Persevered and patient, labored, and not become weary. What's the point of all of this? Jesus is drawing our attention to the reality that Ephesus is being commended because they have tested apostles, they have known who are evil, and they're not willing to bear with those who are evil. How did they get there? Because of their works. This is not just some specific deed, but it's the manner of life in which the Ephesians were living. They know the life, or God knows the life that they have lived. They have lived what we might term a good life. He he knows their toil. He knows their labor. It is the persistent, painful struggle that existed for the church there in Ephesus. It is difficult for us in the 21st century in the West to understand toil. None of us face the altar of Zeus and Poseidon. None of us face the realities of emperor worship as the Apostle John faced. And we talked about last night when he refused to worship the emperor. They attempted to kill him on three different occasions and were unsuccessful. Most of us that exist in the West really don't know what persecution really is. Oh sure, we fight battles. When I first became an Adventist, I was denied. I was denied a promotion. I worked in the restaurant business. I worked at a restaurant that was busier on Sunday than it was on Saturday. And I was going to be promoted to be the assistant manager. And I was denied that promotion because I was unwilling to work on the Sabbath. And we, we, we un- I understand that that may be a struggle and it may cause pain to our families, but that is nothing in comparison to what the Ephesian believers would have faced, where their faith and their Christian life was a life and death experience. There are places in the world today where Christianity is a life and death experience. And I believe one of the major messages that we will come to, because I hear this frequently, people will often say to me, Pastor, I'll die for my faith. Really? That's good to know. God's not asking us to die for our faith. God's asking us to live our faith. Because before we die for our faith, we need to live our faith. Because if we're not living our faith, no one's ever going to take us out because we don't know, they won't know that we are faithful. The Ephesians were faithful. It said they have patience or patient endurance. 
You see, the Ephesians faced tribulation and suffering, persecution. And Jesus is preparing us that that day will come again. To give us a little insight into the persecution suffered by first century Christians. When Nero was emperor in Rome, Nero loved the games. Because Rome was a bloodthirsty society enthralled by the games. The battle. The Circus Maximus. Just as a correction in most of our historical accounts, very few Christians were martyred in the Colosseum. No, where, where, where the martyrdom happened was in what was called the Circus Maximus. The Circus Maximus was the stadium. It was where the races took place. And Nero was quite disappointed because the sun was going down earlier than he wanted it to. And he wanted the races to continue. Thomas Edison had not yet lived, so there were no lights. But long before Thomas Edison, Nero invented his own lights. He had Christians dipped in tar, strapped to poles, and around the Circus Maximus they were placed and lit on fire to give light so the games could continue. I'm not denying the trouble that we face when we're denied Sabbath promotions or the hiring of a job because of Sabbath. But before we cry out to God about how, how unfair life is, let us realize that there are places in the world where life is dramatically more unfair. And then it says that they cannot bear with those that are evil. It's kind of an interesting word picture painted in the Greek. The Greek paints this word picture that you don't have big hearts toward, or you have a small heart toward what kind of people? Evil people. Later they are called false apostles. The reality is that the Ephesian believers were commended because they understood those who were spiritually and morally defunct. That they had disgraceful spiritual qualities and characteristics and they were able to identify it. How were they able to identify it? Because it says, but you have tested You have tested those who say they are apostles. You see, they were able to apply certain procedures in order to determine whether they were true or false. Literally translated, it it seems to indicate that that they tested whether they were genuine or not. They tested and discovered that they were imposters. How did they test them? And why is that important to us in the 21st century? 
During the 2016 election cycle, a phrase was coined. Believe it or not, it was not coined by Donald Trump first, but rather it was coined by Hillary Clinton. We all know the phrase, right? Fake news. Today we, fi- we face a society that is littered with fake news. But that's not the primary concern here about what the local newspaper said in Ephesus. There is a bigger and more dramatic challenge that the Ephesians are facing, and that was fake news in the church. How do we test? How do we test within the context of the church whether news is fake or real? Isaiah 8.20, I heard someone say, that's wonderful because that's what my notes say too. Isaiah 8.20, what does Isaiah 8.20 say? To the law and to the testimony. What is it now? If they speak not according to what word? This word. It is because there is how much light? No light. There is no light in them. You see, the Ephesians, the Ephesian believers were commended because they had a keen understanding of the Bible and the ability to identify what was truth and error. According to statistics and a study done by the Institute of Church Ministry on the campus of Andrews University, today we face a crisis of epic proportion. Less than 50% of Seventh-day Adventists read the Bible more than once per week. Let me say that again just in case you didn't catch it. Less than 50% of Seventh-day Adventists read their Bible more than once per week. Per week. Now all of a sudden the words not one in 20 is ready starting to register. And then later when she says not one in a hundred is ready, it's starting to register because we have a problem. Jesus says, sanctify them. In thy truth, thy word is truth. Sabbath school has become the fodder of the opinions of mankind and not the study of the Word. Afternoon potluck sessions in each of our homes has become the fodder of sharing my opinions about what the pastor said and not about the studying of God's Word. We may not like how someone presents. We may not like how they look. We may not like how they sound. Maybe my voice is particularly annoying to someone here this morning. But God does not say that we are to test them by how they look or how they sound. We are to test them by the Word. The challenge we're facing in the church today is we are dazzled by the outward appearance. And that is frightening because the Bible says that the devil himself will come to this earth 
looking as an angel of light. This is the problem in Revelation chapter 13. What is the dazzle of the beast that rises from the land? Fire comes down out of heaven, which is what? A sign. It's a wonder. I see it. And you see, too often, we think we have this idea that because we have the truth, and somehow, some way, because my name is registered on the church books, or because I attend Heartland Camp Meeting, I have covered myself. The deception outlined in Revelation 13 is one that will be so intricate that Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 13, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 24, and I lost the verse, that if it be possible, that even the elect would be deceived. And we say, how's that possible? That's the first thing that happened in human history. You can eat any tree. You can eat from any tree. But there's one. It's not good for food. And Eve engages, and there is a transformation the opposite direction, where she then concludes, and she saw that it was good for food. Unfortunately, many of us have deceived ourselves because we have ridden on the coattails of an early Advent experience, but we are not in a current experience. And the Ephesians, while commended because they are able to identify false prophets, the Bible says they've got a serious problem on their hand. You see, they know the Scriptures in and out. And we should know the Scriptures in and out. They're able to identify false apostles. They are able to identify evil and call it by its right name. But they have a problem. They have a very, very serious problem. And if we understand the seven churches to be a church, those time progressions over time, when we have the problem that the Ephesians have, it will only lead to one place. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken, some versions say. You have left, other versions will say. You have abandoned, other versions will say, your first love. This is not a new problem. Matthew, the 26th chapter and verse 56. Matthew, chapter 26 and verse 56. This is not a new problem for God's church. Matthew 26 and verse 56. The Bible says, Then all the disciples did what? Forsook Him. It's the same exact word. And fled. Three and a half years. Three and a half years they spent with Jesus, day after day, following him wherever they went. The apostle Peter saying, I will die for you. And the Bible says, they all 
forsook him and fled. Even the one who wrote a gospel and referred to himself as the disciple that God or that Jesus loved. So when we sing the song, the church has one foundation, don't miss out on that. Jesus, when he went to the cross, stood alone. He is the ultimate remnant. Alone. You see, the Ephesian believers seemed to be well well versed in the scriptures, but they had a big problem. And it seems to be a problem that is the opposite problem that they had at one time. They didn't have a problem before. Because 35 years earlier, 35 years earlier, keep your finger in Revelation chapter 2, in the Ephesian, the letter to the Ephesians that the Apostle Paul wrote, there is something fascinating here. Something has happened in Ephesus. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 3. Uh, 15 and 16, what does the Bible say? The Apostle Paul commends the Ephesians and he says this to him, that this to them, therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all saints, do not cease giving thanks for you. Something happened in Ephesus. Something happened to the Ephesian believers. And it would appear to be a twofold occurrence. Their faith in God, their faith in Christ is waning because they had lost their first love, Christ. But then they had another problem they had lost their love for one another. The word here, love, is the word agape. We often describe as agape as God's love for humanity. That's a good working definition of agape. But let us be clear, the word agape is used more often to describe human relationships than it is to use to describe the relationship between God and humanity. And so what has been lost here? Agape. What is agape love? It is love with no strings attached. And it's hard because of the dysfunction of our families to talk about love with no strings attached. I can only compare this to the kind of love that my mom has for me. When I was 18 years old, my mom went to work one day. I packed up all my stuff. And I left, and I didn't tell her where I was going. And I did not speak to my mother for two years. And that's not figurative, that's literal. But I'm going to tell you this, my mom didn't miss my birthday, ever. She didn't miss Christmas. And many of you have heard my story. She looked for excuses to send me cards. She sent me a card on Valentine's Day. She sent me a card on St. Patrick's Day. She sent me a card on Halloween. And some of you are going to be like, oh, Pastor Halloween, you're missing the point. My mom was looking for ways to reach out to me. By the way, I'm 47 years old, and my mom still sends me candy on Valentine's Day. (laughs) Because my mom loves me. And so, when I finally came to my senses... I had a prodigal son experience. But what do you say? Because I'm going to call my mom. 
What do you say? Oh, hey, my, I forgot to call. It's been two years. I called up my mom. And as soon as she heard my voice, because I said, hey, ma, my mom started crying and weeping. And in the 27 years since that happened, just to help you, I'm 47 years old. I don't want you to be distracted. In the 27 years since that happened, my mom has never asked me, never once has she asked me the question, why? Because her love has no strings attached. What if that was the kind of love that we had amongst one another in the church? The Ephesians had lost that. They had abandoned that love. They had forsaken it. They had an emphasis on sound teaching. And do not mistake... Sound teaching is vital because later some of the other churches are rebuked because they don't have sound teaching. But they had sound teaching devoid of the love of God. First, their relationship with God. They had lost that love. First John and chapter 4. The same Apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation in verses 7-11 to says this, Beloved... Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifest toward us, that God has sent His Son, His only begotten Son, rather, into the world, that we might live through Him." In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this you will know that they are My disciples. And he could have filled in the blank there with a multitude of things. And he chose one thing. That they have love for one another. You see, the Ephesian believers had a big problem. They had abandoned their love for Jesus. And in so doing, abandoned their love for one another. And I would challenge you here this morning, when you're having difficulty with someone and having bad feelings towards someone, maybe there is time to do a self-check, take a look in the mirror, and ask whether I am vitally connected to God. Because most often that is the problem that we face. We have lost our vital connection to Him, and by thus doing, we now hold a standard which has become a mechanical standard of do's and don'ts and devoid of love. By the way, for those that think I might be describing cheap grace, let me be very clear, because Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. But let us also be clear on how Jesus treated people. Peter said, I'll die for you. In 
And Jesus, because of his divine foreknowledge, knew that that wasn't true. No, he did know it was true. Just not when Peter thought that was going to happen. I'll tell you, I've preached on that passage. D, I've preached on that passage. I don't even know how many times I've preached on that passage. And I've never noticed until I started looking beyond the chapter. What are the very next words that Jesus says after he says to Peter, will you? Will you die for me? Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Imagine how Peter felt when Jesus said that. He would have been crushed. What are the very next words of Jesus? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, Peter, I would have told you. And Peter, even in your denying self, let me let you, just let me let you know something. Peter, even in your denying self, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Why is that? Well, Peter, because, you see, where I'm going, I want you to be there with me. And so if you're ever wondering about how much Jesus cares about you, right now, right now, Jesus is preparing a place in heaven, in the city, in the new Jerusalem for you. He knows your favorite color. He knows your favorite flowers. He knows your favorite food. He knows everything about you. And he's preparing a place for you. And if I, through my various choices, choose not to go there, I don't know how Jesus deals with that other than the fact he's prepared a place for you and you're not showing up. Which breaks the heart of Jesus, which is why Isaiah calls the lake of fire experience God's strange act. And I want us to take note that the tears are not wiped away until after the millennium. Until after the millennium. And the first one that will have tears wiped is Jesus himself. The shortest verse in the Bible and the most popular in Bible memorization games. Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Did he weep because Lazarus was dead? No, he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why did Jesus weep? Because of the pain of all of those that were there who were experiencing the loss. Which tells us that Jesus loves us and he understands us and he weeps with us. And so we can be, we can be so into the truth. And this is why I said what I said last night. We can talk about, I have the truth. I have the truth. But the question for the Ephesians was, does the truth have you? Listen to these words from the sixth testimony. And I need to tell you, I'm risking something here this morning. Uh, And to my homiletic students, I'm breaking my homiletical rules right now because I am going to read a lengthy quote. And the reason I'm going to read two actual lengthy quotes is because I couldn't say it any better than myself. I couldn't say it any better myself. From the sixth volume of the testimonies, beginning on page 422, Ellen White says this. But after a time, the zeal of the believers, speaking of the Corinthians, their love for God and for one another began to wane. Coldness crept into the church. 
differences sprang up, and the eyes of many were turned from beholding Jesus as the author and finisher of their faith. The masses that might have been convicted and converted by a faithful practice of the truth were left unwarned. Then it was, by the way, I'm going to hit a pause button here. I'm going to hit a pause button here. It's an amazing thing when we read the story of Jehoiakim. Ellen White makes this comment about Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim had one thing to do, and that was to follow the instruction of the prophet Jeremiah. And the prophet's instruction was very clear, surrender to the Babylonians. And Ellen White makes this comment. Had Jehoiakim surrendered and done what the prophet had asked, many would have been converted in Babylon. Unfortunately, the word is, would have been. Then it was that the truth, excuse me, then it was that the message was addressed to the Ephesian church by the true witness. Their lack of interest in the salvation of souls showed that they had lost their first love. For none can love God with the whole heart, mind, soul, and strength without loving those for whom Christ died. Christ called upon them to repent and do the first works, else the candlestick would be removed out of its place. Is not this the experience of the Ephesian church repeated in the experience of the church of this generation? How is the church of today that has received a knowledge of the truth of God using this knowledge. When its members first saw God's unspeakable mercy for the fallen race, they could not keep silent. They were filled with longing to cooperate with God in giving to others the blessings that they had received. As they imparted, they were continually receiving. They grew in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it today? Brethren and sisters, you have long claimed to believe the truth. I ask you individually, have you... Have your practices been in harmony with the light, the privileges, and the opportunities granted you of heaven? This is a serious question. The Son of Righteousness has risen upon the church, and it is the duty of the church to shine. It is the privilege of every soul to make advancement. Those who are connected with Christ will grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Son of God to the full stature of men and women. If all who claim to believe the truth had made the most of their ability and opportunities to learn and to do, they would have become strong in Christ. Whatever their occupation, whether they were farmers, mechanics, teachers, or pastors, if they had wholly consecrated themselves to God, they would have become efficient workers for the Heavenly Master. Let that sit with us. In the eighth volume of the testimony, as I draw to a conclusion, Ellen White writes these words. Many today are asleep as were the disciples. They are not watching and praying lest they enter into temptation. Let us read and study those portions of God's word 
that have special reference to those last days, pointing out the dangers that will threaten God's people. We need keen, sanctified perception. This perception is not to be used. Listen to these words now. This perception is not to be used in criticizing and condemning one another, but discerning the signs of the times. We are to keep our hearts with all diligence that we may not make a shipwreck of faith. Many who were once firm believers in the truth have become careless in regard to their spiritual welfare and are yielding without the slightest opposition to Satan's well-laid plots. It is time for our people to take their families from the cities into more retired localities, else many of the youth, excuse, else many of the youth and many of those older in years will be ensnared and taken by the enemy. Later she refers to the need for evangelism in these last days. And what is the solution as I draw to a close? Remember where you, the height you have fallen. Repent and return. It is the threefold. It is the threefold answer to the question. Remember, repent, and return. We talked about repentance last night. What does it mean to remember? Take time to personally reflect. In our society dominated by busyness, how many of us take a moment to reflect upon where we are spiritually? Where am I in relation to God? Repent. Experience the transforming power of God's grace in our life and return to Jesus. Because as the warning is, if we don't, He will remove our lampstand. And I began by talking about Ephesus as a coastal city with silt deposits that needed to be removed on a regular basis. If you visit ancient Ephesus today, it's no longer on the coast. It is over a mile from the coast. Because the slow deposits of silt built up over time, that there was no longer water there that made Ephesus a viable port city. What's the point? We can lose our grasp upon Jesus slowly, unperceptively, and before you know it, we are no longer sitting by the still waters that Jesus offers, and we are in a far and distant land. But if we remember, if we repent, And if we return, the promise is, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. It's the same promise given to Adam and Eve. Paradise lost. Paradise restored. So what will we do? Will we just kind of continue on with the status quo? Show up at convocations and camp meetings? Feel inspired by a good speaker? 
read an article, read a book. But have none of it make any effect on how we live. We are merely having an Ephesian experience. And you mix up that Ephesian experience with a Laodicean experience. And you have a church. And let's make it more personal. We have individuals that are ill-prepared to encounter Jesus when He comes again. Remember, take time for personal reflection. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till next week. Take time today. Am I living the life that Jesus would want for me? Repent. If you are not living that life, confess your sin before the most holy God who promises that He will forgive you of your sins and then He will do something profound. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness, meaning He will give you a new beginning. And then return to Jesus, your first love. That you would love Him with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. And in turn, because of that love He's demonstrated to you, that you would love others with no strings attached. They don't have the same theological persuasion as you. You still love them. They say something mean to you. You still love them. They disappoint you. You still love them. Return to Him. And in returning to Him, through our remembering and our repentance, we are promised, we are guaranteed to be able to eat from the tree of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can talk about how we have fallen as a church. And that gives us an out. Lord, today before you, we have fallen as individuals. We have fallen far from the course that you would have set before us. Lord, many of us sitting here today have the right theology. Many of us sitting here today have the right books in our library. Many of us here today, Lord, have our names residing in the right church books and our membership there. But today, many of us are struggling, Lord, because we have the experience as the Ephesians had, and that is over the course of time, the silt of sin has clouded and clogged our heart. And we have lost our vital connection with your son Jesus. And so today before you, we confess. And we ask that you forgive us for being so careless in something so important. And we ask, Lord, in this confession that you would forgive us 
that you would then cleanse us, Lord, and that you would give us the strength to return to you and return to that vital connection. And as you pour upon us the life-giving waters and the life-giving bread, may we become channels to distribute it far and wide. And Lord, give us the strength to not wait until tomorrow or next week. But may this transformative moment happen today and right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.